time again for Great Runners in History. Jesse Owens, Carl Lewis, Eric Little, Jonah of Gath. Oh, wait, Jonah, a runner? Sometimes it's not the goal you're running towards, but the task you're running from. And Jonah, son of Amittai, was on the run from his mission to tell the Ninevites about the one true God and to repent. But he'll find out you can't run from the long arm of the Lord. Join Dr. Carl Brogy and the Congregation of Community Bible Church for the ongoing study of Jonah, Sundays at 9.15 and 11 in Beaufort and 11 in Grays and Graniteville. This week, Jonah gets a call from the Lord but heads in the wrong direction to board a ship bound for Tarshish in a message titled, Run, Jonah, Run. Details online at communitybiblechurch.us. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this new year to the Bible line, and as always, uh, if you are new to this uh, station, 88.7 FM. I introduced it yesterday to someone who just moved here and didn't know there was a Christian radio station. So there are new people tuning in all the time. Well, on Tuesdays at 11 for an hour, we take people's questions. They email them. You can email them directly here into the studio at TBL. That stands, of course, for the Bible line, TBL at net, Or you can call us. Again, that number that Rick just gave, the 843 exchange is 525-1859. Or if you wish, you can uh, go on the air live or dictate your question. We're happy to receive it however you will give it. So with that said, uh, Rick, uh, it's good to be back here after Christmas and New Year's and a uh, great opportunity, again, to hopefully encourage and minister to God's people. Uh, that's right, Pastor. And uh, we've got a number of questions that did come in over the holidays so let's get right to them. Angie from Tennessee writes, when you are ministering to those who are battling life-threatening illnesses, how do you reconcile the multiple references to God healing people of diseases in the Bible with the reality that sometimes believers are not healed, though we are to take God at his word? Well, that's a, that's a great question, and it really is broader than just life-threatening uh, ailments, though unfortunately that's sometimes the only time God gets our attention. You know, we pray about the big things, but not, you know, little small things. Well, there's nothing big or small to God Almighty. But it begins with uh, really developing a theology on health and what God says about our bodies. Certainly we have a role to play. Some people invite trouble in that they overeat and they get, you know, certain types of diabetes that are due to you know, too much eating, too much sugar. Uh, there are some problems that are inherited in family lines because of the fall. Uh, sometimes we don't exercise or take care of ourselves, and then we wonder why we're sick. And, 
It's the law of sowing and reaping, which God doesn't cancel out. But all things being equal, it's important to know in your theology that God doesn't always heal people. Uh, a person can claim First John 5, this is the will of God, that if we, you know, if we pray anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we've asked, we know that we have the request from him. Well, if there was a promise that God always heals and will heal, then you could stand on that and take First John 5, verse 14, and apply it to physical healing. But it's not always God's will for people to be healed. Uh, when the Lord came, he didn't heal everyone. So think about it in the broad sense. Let's think for just a moment about the Old Testament, because sometimes some Old Testament texts are used and abused out of context. Uh, when you read Scripture, at least for the first 2,500 years of uh, history, there is no healing that is done until uh, the time of uh, Abraham, and it was a Pharaoh who was healed. If you remember Abraham uh, put his wife off like she was his sister and uh, and not his wife, and then God uh, revealed to the Pharaoh that he was lying, and and he brought some physical ailment on him, and the assumption is, is that he's healed, and I think that's a, a real assumption. Uh, our true assumption. Uh, the next case we have is Miriam during the time of Moses. And if you remember, she and Aaron confronted Moses on his leadership and why, you know, he should be the only one who speaks. And the initiative, of course, came from Miriam. Uh, there's a feminine singular verb. I've been asked that question. Well, why didn't he just, you know, put leprosy on Aaron as well, because she took the initiative and Aaron was basically in the amen corner. But if you remember, she received leprosy and uh, she was set aside for seven days and then God healed her. Um, later on, Moses will codify some promises uh, for the nation of Israel and what we call the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, let me read one. I'm turning to the book of um, Deuteronomy in the seventh chapter. And in the 15th verse, God makes a promise. He says, the Lord will remove from you all sicknesses, and he will not put on you any of the harmful diseases of Egypt, which you have known, but will lay them on all those who hate you. And then he'll expand on that later towards the end of the book when he goes into the uh, blessing and cursing uh, passage verses and promises. And basically, if you obey me, I'll bless you not just physically, but materially and in all these various ways. But if you disobey me, then I'm going to, um, you know, bring sicknesses on you, among other things. It can be a form of God's discipline on Israel. That was the Mosaic Covenant. That was unique to Israel. Just like in the same Torah, he mentions, look, your shoes aren't going to wear out for 40 years, nor your clothes. I wish I had shoes and clothes that didn't wear out for 40 years, but they do. And uh, But God made a promise uh, to them, and that was uh, unconditional. It was just going to happen no matter how they lived and what they did. They had the same clothes for 40 years that they took off their back when they left uh, the land of Egypt. And, of course, they could only take so much. So with all that said, God doesn't always promise to heal. There was a popular book that was done in the 70s when I was a relatively new Christian. It was entitled, None of These Diseases. And again, it was taking a verse out of context. It was in reference to the Mosaic Covenant. When you uh, step into the New Testament, Jesus himself didn't heal everyone. 
Uh, now, he went to some towns, like in Matthew 9, and I'm turning there in Matthew chapter 9. Uh, he makes it, we read this statement, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, every kind of disease and every kind of sickness doesn't mean everyone. It just means he displayed his power, that it wasn't limited to just people with colds or things like that, but every kind of disease. He healed paralyzed limbs. He opened blind eyes. He unstopped deaf ears. Jesus performed the miraculous, and some of the things that he did were unique to him, had never been done before. Uh, When you come to a town like Nazareth, if you remember in Mark 6, he makes his second visit to Nazareth, and that's often overlooked that he made two major visits after uh, he began his public ministry. If you remember the first time he goes to Nazareth, they want to throw him off a cliff because they don't like what he says. They wanted to be saved by association And he says, we're not saved by association. Jesus dealt with this problem in other instances. You say, well, we're children of Abraham. Well, if you're really, truly spiritual children of Abraham and not just physical descendants, then you do the deeds that Abraham did. You would have and display the faith that Abraham had and displayed. And so in Nazareth, when he goes back a year later after they try to throw him off a cliff, he still loves the people of Nazareth. This is where he grew up. He spent 30 years of his life there. But he could only heal a few people, the Bible says, because of their unbelief. Um, Paul the Apostle, he was granted the gift of healing. It's one of the marks of an apostle, according to 2 Corinthians 12, 12. But even Paul didn't heal everyone. Remember when Timothy was sick, he told him to take a little wine for his frequent ailments. He was probably, you know, wanting to be on a Nazarite vow, much like John the Baptist. There's only three lifelong uh, Nazarites, so to speak, or three lifelong people who took Nazarite vows. John the Baptist was one, and and, uh, he didn't want to drink any wine or strong drink. And Paul said, no, you need to add some strong drink. Uh, And strong drink, of course, was fermented wine, not the distilled alcohols that come almost a thousand years later. And typically they would add strong drink to water, and it purified it. Uh, It made it safe to drink. Uh, Paul also reminded us that when he uh, um, was in Miletus, he left behind Trophimus, sick. Why didn't you just heal him, Paul? Well, because it wasn't always God's will for him to display his power as an apostle, just like Jesus didn't heal everyone. If you remember Epaphroditus, Um, Paul says he was at the point of death and it grieved his heart. Why didn't you just heal him? Because this was not a brother who was at the point of death because he was under divine discipline and that can happen. First Corinthians 1130, some of you are weak, some of you are sick and some of you have fallen asleep. That is, you've prematurely died. Why? Because of unrepented sin in the life. Uh, First John deals with the same problem of a sin that leads to death, the physical death because of unrepented sin sin. And so, but Epaphroditus was not that kind of guy. He was a fellow worker, a fellow soldier. Paul describes him in Philippians 2, but he was sick to the point of death, but God chose to to heal him independently of Paul. Paul himself had a physical ailment. We're not told what it was. I suspect it was his eyes. We don't know for certain, 
So we can't be dogmatic where the scripture is not dogmatic, but why didn't you just heal yourself, Paul? Well, because it wasn't God's will for him to be healed. In fact, it was in uh, weakness that he had to rely all the more on God's grace and on God's strength to continue forward. So it's important that we interpret Scripture with Scripture. The ultimate healing will not come when the Revelation in the 21st chapter speaks that there'll be no more death and no more disease, and it will all be wiped away, even the tears from our eyes when we are in the kingdom of God in the eternal city that God has prepared for us. So that's a great question. I really appreciate the heart behind it, and I hope that will help you. 843-525-1859. If you have a question for today's Bible line, Shirley from Port Royal writes, will you please clarify the teachings of the independent church? I have a family member that is a member of one. Well, I assume by the independent church, you're referencing independent Baptists. There are independent churches um, that refer to those churches that do not formally organize themselves denominationally. So, for instance, um, you had a group of Baptists who basically were kicking against liberalism that was entering into the Southern Baptist realm, and so they formed what they call the Independent Baptist Movement. And I would say, just in fairness to Southern Baptists, that they would affirm that the autonomy of the local church, they would call themselves independent. That is, they would say that there's not a structure above us, not Nashville, Tennessee, or any other place, or Atlanta, where, you know, Southern Baptists have had, you know, key leadership um, movements that affect uh, the whole Southern Baptist denomination, which is actually the largest Protestant evangelical denomination in the United States. Um, They would still affirm we're autonomous. No one tells us as a local church what we should do or believe, and that's actually the biblical pattern. Uh, that there's not a structure above the local church in this day because there are no apostles. And so with the uh, death of the apostles, uh, the only structure that is above us is the Lord Jesus himself and the apostolic teaching that they have left behind for us to follow and to teach and to aspire to obey. Uh, But while churches are uh, independent, they're supposed to be interdependent. So again, A Southern Baptist would do this through their convention, the Southern Baptist Convention that exists for a meeting that's held once a year. And at that convention, they decide as independent churches how they want funds that they have collectively pulled together to be used. And again, the whole process of them forming convention happened after the, the the Southern Baptists broke off from the Northern Baptists over the issue of slavery. Some Baptist churches in the South felt like it was their right to own slaves, and they had misinterpreted and misapplied Scripture grossly. Uh, but in the course of time, and, and I will say in fairness to them that they've repented of that, they acknowledged that what they did was wrong, but in the course of time, they realized, hey, we need to send missionaries. The first missionary to leave for uh, the United States to go to foreign soil was Adoniram Judson. He actually left from my hometown of Worcester, Massachusetts. He left actually as a Congregationalist, so on the, sh- the trip over, he became a Baptist and was a Baptist the rest of his life. But people realized we can't all by ourselves 
send this young man who wants to be a missionary. And so let's get together with our other like-minded churches. And so Baptists did that, and they formed eventually the Southern Baptist Convention. Independent Baptists do the same. They've created their own independent um, mission agencies, but still, nonetheless, those missionaries that are represented by those agencies have to go to various local churches, and they might be independent Baptists. They might be a Southern Baptist church that decides to support them. Community Bible Church supports some independent Baptist missionaries. Uh, They are not called independent Baptists as they work for a particular mission agency, but that's what they are theologically and in practice. And those agencies that they represent were started by independent Baptists and And so they are still called to be interdependent with the rest of the body of Christ. And I should say, parenthetically, that about 90% of the missionaries in the world today are not denominationally funded missionaries. So as great as the Southern Baptist Convention is, they only represent a small percentage of all the missionaries that have left American soil to minister overseas. Most of the missionaries are with Uh, independent mission agencies. It might be Wycliffe Bible Translators or uh, any number of groups that you can think of. So uh, the biblical principle is that every church is autonomous. And while we are autonomous, independent, we are to be interdependent and that we are to recognize other like-minded churches and to cooperate with them for the furtherance of the gospel because no one church is going to fulfill the Great Commission. We should live like we're the only church in the world that can fulfill the Great Commission, but no one church can do it. We need each other. We need the entire body of Christ uh, to do all that we can to spread the gospel. Good question. Appreciate it. The number again, 843-525-1859. If you have a question, you can go on the air live, or you can just dictate it, uh, or you can email it, as many people have done here at TBL. TBL at um, WAGP.net. There we go. All right. Suzanne from Hardyville would like to know, how does free grace theology as presented by Dr. Bob Wilkin line up with scripture? Well, uh, free grace theology was founded in the 80s when I was actually at Dallas Seminary, and there was a professor there by the name of Zane Hodges Today, leadership to that organization is given by Robert Wilkin or Bob Wilkin, as you said. And uh, basically, the genesis of the organization, I think, was as much as anything a reaction to those who had been raised in legalistic-type homes where uh, maybe they were left with the impression that unless you do certain things and live a certain way, that you cannot be saved. And so not wanting to muddy the grace of God by front-loading the gospel with works, uh, they underscored, and I think maybe in an unhealthy way, though unhelpful to some people, in an unhealthy way, they, they didn't put enough emphasis on the fact that when someone is genuinely saved, that their life changes. And so they are underscoring that salvation is a free gift. It cannot be earned or merited in any way. And all Christians, true Christians, would affirm that, that you put your full and complete faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But they didn't put enough emphasis, in my view, on life change. Now, Zane Hodges, if you knew him, he was a very godly man. 
and he loved Christ passionately. And some of the people in the Lordship Salvation Camp like to criticize him and make fun of him, but they didn't know him. If you ever heard Zane Hodges pray, you felt like you were in the presence of God Almighty. He was a man that truly and passionately loved Jesus Christ. And again, I, I don't know why he didn't emphasize enough the changed life, but he didn't. And so, and again, they felt like, well, if you said you have to have these kinds of fruit in order to be saved, they felt like that was front-loading the gospel with works. On the other end of the spectrum, you have the Lordship Salvation uh, Camp, and they would say, well, the grace of God that saves not only forgives, but transforms. And that's important. It does transform. And that if there's a lack of transformation in a person's life, then they have reason to doubt that they have genuinely been born again. Uh, The only problem in the Lordship Salvation Camp, while they would truly say that sanctification is progressive, uh, the question becomes, well, how much fruit do you have to have in order to say that you're genuinely saved? Now, Zane Hodges would not deny for a moment that if a person, you know, said that, Christ is no longer my Savior, that he had ever truly, genuinely been saved. He would affirm perseverance, but he would briefly define perseverance differently than, say, the Lordship Salvation Camp. When you read the Protestant Reformers and they speak of perseverance of the saints, it's not simply once saved, always saved, but it's an ongoing, passionate desire to please and obey Christ showing the internal fruit that only the Spirit of God can produce. So the Lordship Salvation Camp would accuse um, the free grace theology of easy believism. And the free grace theology camp would accuse the Lordship Salvation Camp of muddying the gospel with works. So I would say that, look, all true Christians affirm that you're saved by grace alone through faith alone. And if we are truly saved, your life will be transformed. And if it's not transformed, then it's an empty faith. That's one of the principles that James underscores. But I think it's important that we recognize that some people that we may have concluded are not saved may be saved, and and you'll be surprised when you get to heaven to see some people there whom you thought would not be there because they had enough fruit. Look, the Corinthians' fruit was not that impressive. Though they had fruit, as 1 Corinthians 11 underscores, but there was a lot of internal problems in that church, not only division, but sexual immorality, and yes, even on occasion, drunkenness at the Lord's table. So there were some real problems in the Corinthian church, and Paul will even write in his second letter to test yourself to see if you be of the faith. So, um, you know, I, I, I don't want to write off the free grace theology, but I do think they are out of balance just like there are some people in the Lordship Salvation Camp that are out of balance, and they have forgotten what it was like to be a new Christian. They have forgotten some of the issues that they struggled with maybe in their first two, three, four, five years of the Christian life um, and what it was really like. And, and some of the people that they would write off today as lost are, are exemplifying the same issues that they struggled with in their early years. So again, um, Biblical balance is always essential when you're addressing any of these issues. 
Very good. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Timothy from Bridgeport, Connecticut, says he saw a video by Dr. Michael Eisner regarding the fall of the angels and Satan. Eisner argues that a third of the angels didn't fall with Satan at the beginning of time, that the third fell at the birth of Christ. He used the verses from Revelation 12. I would appreciate your opinion on this. I don't know this particular preacher, but from what you just said, tells me what camp is in theologically. When you approach the book of Revelation, and it might be helpful to this listener from Bridgeport, Connecticut, who's writing us, to listen to my very first message on the book of Revelation, where I walk through various approaches that people have taken for interpreting Revelation. Some have taken what's called the preterist view. Uh, Praetor means past, and so the preterist view, and there are what is known as full preterists, so I'm just going to lay them aside for a second because most people don't even acknowledge them as being close, even your preterist. But generally speaking, someone who takes the preterist view says that the book of Revelation is for the most part history until you get to the 19th chapter where you have the second coming of Christ. So they would say that Revelation 1 all the way through the 18th chapter has already happened. And so they say that because of the theological persuasions that they have, largely due to their view of the nation of Israel. They teach what's called replacement theology or supersessionism, that the church has has gone above and beyond God's plan with Israel and that he no longer has a plan for the people of Israel. I think that's wrong. I think it's dangerous. I think it's put the church to sleep in the day that we live in. And many of these people don't really see what is happening in the world today as having any prophetic significance when they should have their eyes wide open because this is what God said he would do in the latter days at the end of time as he would gather the Jewish people into the land from the four corners of the earth. And he's done that. He has done it in the last 70-plus years. It's been a miracle. And when Christians, you know, 500 years into church history said, well, God says he's going to do it, but maybe he's not. And then a 1,000 years into church history, they said, I don't think God's going to do it. Maybe we've misunderstood it. And then through the Reformation, when you have those Protestant reformers who are coming out of Roman Catholicism, like Calvin and Luther, and they said, certainly he's not going to do it, and the church is the new Israel, and the church has replaced Israel, then how do you deal with the book of Revelation? For that matter, how do you deal even with the Olivet Discourse? So uh, the preterist butchers the Olivet Discourse, and so he looks at most of what Jesus says, with the exception of his coming on the clouds in glory, again, as historical as already having taken place. So when you come to a passage like Revelation chapter 12, uh, then another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his head were seven diadems, and his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child, and she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is, who is to rule 
all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God into his throne, and then the woman fled into the wilderness, and and there was a war in heaven, and Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, the dragon again being defined here as Satan, and the dragon and his angels waged war, and they weren't strong enough, and there was no longer a place for them found in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, and he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So what he is doing here, and I have an hour-long message just on the first 10 verses, is he's outlining the career of Satan. The fall of Satan is taught in the Old Testament, but there's a future fall literally to the earth that has not yet happened where Satan will be cast out of heaven during the time of the Great Tribulation and there'll be um, more demonic activity than we've ever, ever seen. But the preterist, based on the Latin word preter, that means past, says that this has all been fulfilled. And so you have to apply a different principle of interpretation for prophetic literature, which is really what the book of Revelation is, than you do to the rest of the Bible. How are the prophecies for the first coming fulfilled? They were literally fulfilled just as God said them. Uh, They weren't spiritually fulfilled. They were literally fulfilled, actually, as God said them. And so we should expect the same for the prophecies concerning the second coming. And we have precedents given within the scripture itself on how to interpret prophetic literature. So it's not like, well, he applies this principle of interpretation, this hermeneutic, and this guy over here applies another hermeneutic. Take uh, Martin Luther. He didn't hold to the preterist view of uh, Revelation. He held to the historical view of Revelation And he said that Revelation was being fulfilled through the church age. And so when he was alive, he viewed the Pope as the Antichrist. He thought, no, the Antichrist is actually literally physically on the earth. This is the one Jesus spoke of, and he's the Pope in Rome. Well, the problem with the historical view is, again, it abuses how to interpret Scripture. So when we see Christ or the apostles or even Old Testament saints interfacing with one another. Take Daniel in the ninth chapter. He's interfacing with the prophet Jeremiah in the 25th chapter. And he says to himself, we've been in here Babylon for a long time. I wonder how much longer. So he, he gets the scroll of Jeremiah and begins to pour through it and says, oh, it's told us how long we're going to be here, 70 years. And then, of course, his question is, then what? And God gives him the powerful 70 weeks prophecy that outlines Israel's history, including the coming of the Messiah, the cutting down of the Messiah, and the time of Jacob's trouble, the great tribulation. One of the greatest mathematical prophecies in all the Bible is there. And yet, how does he interpret Jeremiah? Literally, he sees that prophecy as going to be literally fulfilled. And that's how uh, Jesus interpreted prophecy. That's how the apostles interpreted prophecy. So this guy whom you are listening to has a system of theology that flavors his interpretation of Revelation that, in my view, is errant, and he's actually doing a gross disservice to the church, as most people are who um, interpret the Bible in a way where they see no future for the people of Israel. The church should have their eyes wide open. There was a great expositor by the name of Harry Ironside. And Dr. Ironside, uh, he died in the early uh, 1950s, 
but he was one of those verse-by-verse preachers. And for a long time, ever before Israel became a nation, he said Israel is going to become a nation because God said he, that they would become a nation. And when Israel became a nation on May the 14th, 1958, Dr. Ironside used to say, I would go to bed with my eyes wide open because I know we are now on the time frame that the scripture calls the end of time. Can a nation be born in a day, the prophet asks, and the answer is yes, and that's what God did with the people of Israel. And he continued to fulfill prophecy after they became a nation because on their independence day, there was only 600,000 Jews. And of course, what man meant for evil, God meant for good. You know, we had the St. Louis, that ship that came to the American shores and our own president uh, said, no, you can't come, FDR, you can't come. You're not allowed to come here. Uh, We will not receive your ship and protect you as a people. And they ended up going back and they were, of course, exterminated. And so when the Jews had no place to go, they went to their homeland and they began to gather there and gather there. And ever since that time, God has gathered uh, about 7 million Jews. Now, people debate how many Jews there are on the planet. There's a lot of people who have claimed to be Jewish in order to find housing and uh, secure a place to live within the boundaries of Israel. Uh, but most would say that there's somewhere between 12.5 million to 15 million Jews on the planet. Whatever the number, known only to God, it's a small percentage of people. And yet God said in the latter times, and he says it four different times in the Old Testament, he would gather the Jews from the four corners of the earth. You say, well, he's only gathered half of them. Well, maybe more than half, but he's not going to gather all of them, but he has to gather enough of them in order to fulfill the final prophetic plan that is described in the Revelation, that's described in the Olivet Discourse. It doesn't say those who are in Dallas flee to the wilderness. No, those who are in Judea. In this chapter of Scripture, Revelation 12, that uh, this preacher, Dr. What's his name, Heisner, uh, references, this is a future event when they are going to flee to the wilderness, just like Jesus said. And so... Again, it's, it's a gross abuse, and in, in my view, it is a gross disservice to the body of Christ because when the church should be wide awake, we're lukewarm. You know, you've got pastors saying, well, I'm just believing God for an awakening. Well, if God wants to send an awakening, he may, but understand there's coming a time in human history when there's not going to be an awakening. Things are only going to get worse. God will remove his church. And then the remaining awakening will happen during the time of Jacob's trouble, the time of the end, uh, the great tribulation. Different terms are used to describe that seven-year period. And the greatest revival in all of human history is going to take place. So a Heisner, when when he comes to, and again, I don't even know the man, never heard of him before, but I know his theology. So when he comes to a place like Matthew chapter 24, to be consistent, and I'm sure he is, uh, he would take verse uh, 14, this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So the preterist would say, well, this this is in reference to the very end, to the second coming that's later going to be described, and, um, we have to fulfill the great commission for the end to come. Actually, in the context, this is going to happen during the time of the great tribulation. 
this is when the great tribulation, um, it's during this time frame that God is going to fulfill the great commission where every tribe, people, tongue, and nation that John sees in Revelation 7 saved during the time of the great tribulation are going to come to faith. The greatest harvest since Pentecost in the quickest, fastest, most precise way is going to happen in the future. And what we have attempted to do for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, God is going to do in a short time frame in his mercy and his grace to this coming world. So anyway, that's why it's important when you read someone, you want to find out, well, what is their theology? What drives them? And I can almost guess what his theology is in other areas in light of this one question that you've asked. But I wouldn't do that. I would only do it with what you've said, and your question is in reference to his eschatology. But I can guess his ecclesiology, his soteriology, and other other realms as well. So while he's no doubt a believer, I'm assuming, again, I've never met him, I think he's errant in his doctrine of future things. All right, very good. Abdel from Louisville, Kentucky, says, A few Sundays ago, Pastor Chip Ingram was invited to our church, which is Southeast Christian Church, to preach on Ephesians 6, verses 10 to 17, the armor of God. I believe it was a good sermon because he broke it down and explained verse by verse what those verses mean and how we can apply them in our daily lives. But at the end of the sermon, he told a story of how he taught his kids since they were little to rebuke the devil, either when they had nightmares or they felt attacked by the devil. Did he kind of contradict the whole uh, sermon with that story? I can't find in those verses where it says to attack or to pray to the devil in Jesus' name so he'll go away. Could you please help me understand more of what's taught in Ephesians 6, 10 to 17? Well, I wouldn't say he contradicted the whole sermon, um, though I haven't heard the sermon. But if he walked through it verse by verse and he described the armor accurately, then he's describing our weaponry And certainly we are to be awake and alert in prayer. But certainly there are some Christians who believe that um, they have the authority to rebuke the devil and that they must, as a way of life, as part of facing spiritual battle, be in the process of rebuking him. But there's no biblical basis for for that kind of thinking. Uh, The Bible doesn't give us authority to rebuke the devil it does give us authority to resist the devil. And so I just finished a series in the book of James, and in James 4, he speaks about submitting yourselves to God, resisting the devil, and he'll flee from you. So we are to flee towards the Lord. We're to flee away from the devil. And when we resist the devil in his ways, then he turns to someone else. Um, Zechariah, that is also quoted by Michael the Archangel, Zechariah chapter 3, tells us that it's the Lord who rebukes Satan. And uh, in the book of Jude, I did a whole series of messages once in Jude. I need to redo Jude. The tape quality is so poor. Um, But Michael the Archangel, when he is confronted with Satan, he says, the Lord rebuke you. So a Christian should go to Christ and he should put on his spiritual armor. He should carry every thought uh, to the obedience of Christ. He should quote scripture because one of our offensive weapons is the word of God. 
And so when a thought comes, and let me just say, you know, sometimes we we think, well, the devil's after me. Well, remember, he's not omnipotent. And he's certainly not omnipresent. He's a created being, though he has billions of demons that serve under his uh, care and authority. And, of course, the number that fell is given to us in the Revelation. A third of the demons fell. We just read that from Revelation 12. But more often than not, it's not Satan that is literally physically attacking you. Uh, But he may have demons that are at work. He energizes the world system. And many times... Uh, the attacks that we feel are just coming from our own fallen, sinful nature. We're carried away, each man, by his own lust, his own evil desire. And so that's why it's important that we put on the Lord Jesus, that we make no provision for the flesh. And that's what the Scripture says in Romans 13 and verse 14. Make no provision for the flesh, for the sinful nature, in regards to its lust. So when a thought comes, whether it's from a demon, even if it was Satan himself, though I don't know that I could say I've ever been literally tempted by the devil himself. Maybe maybe he was involved, um, but I wouldn't be so presumptuous. Most often, temptations come from our own fallen, sinful nature within. But what Satan is doing, remember, there's three um, forces that wage war against the believer— And we cover this in our discovery class at Community Bible Church. There's the world, there's the flesh, and the devil. So what the devil often does is he energizes, he gives one single person of influence an idea. And that person with an idea, for instance, there were two guys at Harvard who no doubt had an idea from the evil one uh, in the 1980s, and they developed a plan together on how to persuade Americans to embrace what today we call the LGBTQIA plus movement. And they had a a plan. It was a 20-year plan on how to change the way people think. So sometimes it only takes one or two people. It might be a producer of a movie uh, who wants to capture the hearts of little children with a pantheistic worldview. And so he develops Star Wars because uh, the founder of that whole series was a committed pantheist. And if you read the early writings when the first movie came out that was done by him in the 1970s, he said he had an agenda. So it only takes a few people to try to capture the hearts and minds of a large group of people. And when that happens in a concerted way, and that's what is happening because Ephesians 2 says it's the prince of the power of the air who is now working, and it's the Greek word energo. We get our word energy. You could render it, he is energizing the sons of disobedience. So you have the world system that's being energized by the evil one, and you have your flesh within, and that's why we're called to starve the flesh and feed the spirit because the law of sowing and reaping. God is not mocked whatever a man sows that he will reap. And so we are to sow to the spirit. An Indian, not an Indian, an Eskimo came to his pastor and and he used descriptive terms as best he could relate to his pastor of this war within. He said, it's like I have 
two dogs at war within me. There's this evil dog who's always fighting against me. And then there's this good dog who, who seems to want to support me. And, and it seems like the evil dog is winning all the time. And his pastor said to this Eskimo sled man, well, which dog are you feeding the most? And there's a subtle biblical truth in that, that we are to feed the spirit. We are to feed on the things of God. And that's why Jesus, when he's tempted in each of the three temptations that you can read of in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, he quotes scripture. It is written, it is written, it is written. And so how can a man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all your heart, with all my heart, I've sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. So there's a heart to obey God. We call that today under New Testament terms a spirit-filled Christian. And if you're out of fellowship, you won't have that desire. With all my heart, I want to obey you. Um, and then he goes on to say, your word I've hidden, I've treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. And so we are to use this offensive weapon. So um, if he said, you know, you're to rebuke the devil, he has no biblical support for that. And again, I don't want to say he said that. I can only go by what you said. But before I would say he said that, I would have to hear it myself because I know many times people have said things about me that, no, that's not actually what I said. In fact, I said just the opposite. But if someone taught that we are to rebuke the devil. No, the Lord rebuke you. That's the principle that we have. Good question. All right, very good. 843-525-1859. And Kirby from Belfourche, South Dakota, writes the following. Um, I have found a solid Bible-believing church in Spearfish, South Dakota, called Faith Bible Church under Pastor Greg Dennison. He is a wonderful expositor, and we spent the last year and a half going over 1 Peter. He went to seminary and was under John MacArthur, and I decided early on that the fact that he is a five-point Calvinist will not deter me from being a serving member in my local assembly. We see eye to eye on Israel and the Abrahamic covenant and the fact that the church has not replaced Israel, yet he insists passages such as Romans chapter 9 are about individual election and not national. I cannot understand why he thinks this way, especially if he doesn't believe replacement theology. I've listened over and over to your Romans 9 sermons on Jacob and Esau, Pharaoh, and sovereign choice, and it only solidifies again that I cannot agree with this Calvinist approach. I even sent him your sermon on God's foreknowledge to listen to. He never let me know what he thought. My pastor does believe that evangelism of the lost is paramount, even if people are predestined. However, he also fully believes in limited atonement, and man truly does not have free will and is total depravity. I want to make clear I'm very thankful to be under this local assembly, and it is very biblically sound. I am very thankful for my current pastor, as he has personally helped me on my sanctification so much and has only furthered your teaching on the importance of the local church. However, this Calvinist theology has weighed very heavy on my heart. I know for a fact that uh, he, if he exegeted Romans 9 line by line, it would sound extremely different from yours. Do you have any advice on how to handle this within my own heart or if I should even address my concerns with my pastor? He is absolutely open to discussion. I just fear he'll try to convince me of limited atonement and lack of free will and faith as a work if we talk about it more. I'm inclined to let it go for plurality's sake and the fact that we see eye to eye on everything else Thank you for considering my long question, and I appreciate your advice. 
Well, Kirby, it's a it's a great question. And sometimes, you know, with brothers in Christ, we just have to agree to disagree. So I am encouraged that unlike most Calvinists, he does not see uh, the church as replacing Israel. He would fall into the same category here as, say, John MacArthur. Now, do I agree with all that John MacArthur says and teaches? Certainly I do not. But I admire him. I respect him. I would affirm him as a brother in Christ, as an elder statesman. But I don't agree with everything. In fact, you'll have no two pastors who agree on everything. Uh, someone wrote John MacArthur about me, and that person sent me a copy of the letter, that email, I should say, that John MacArthur wrote about me, and it was very affirming and very encouraging and um, uh, said he knew me and uh, what I taught, and so I don't know how he knows me or what I taught. I know people that go to his church and the like, but we would agree to disagree on some issues. And so you always try to find the best church that you can possibly find in a community and then get behind that pastor, pray for him, and do everything that you can to serve in that fellowship. If uh, a church is so far off on some doctrine that you feel like is critical to your being in good fellowship with those people— then you should find another church at that point. I have friends who will not go to a church that teaches replacement theology because they feel like it does damage to the body of Christ, and it does do damage. Now, with that said, he says that we should, you know, indeed evangelize the lost. There was a very popular book. I remember reading it as a new Christian. I still have my original copy Uh, that I bought in 1975. It was called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. It was by J.I. Packer. And J.I. Packer was a five-point Calvinist. Uh, He was also uh, one who thought that the church had replaced Israel. But his argument was that because God is sovereign in salvation, that because God will save his elect, that that should be a motivation to us to share our faith. Well, uh, I don't think that should be a motivation. I think what should be a motivation is that we obey him because he first loved us and he commanded us to go. And so it's the grace of God that should motivate us to evangelism. And the Lord told us in advance that not everyone would respond. He told us that in the parable of the sower. And of course, the five-point Calvinists would say in the first three soils, it's because they're non-elect. And I would just say, no, um, God in his grace opens the hearts of unbelievers unless, of course, they make choices where they repeatedly reject the revelation of God. And so even in the parable of the sower, Jesus on the first soil describes a person who is so hardened towards the things of God that he won't be saved. God only knows this number and who they are. Those beside the road are those who have heard then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. So there's some people whom Jesus said will not believe and be saved. And the five-point Calvinists would say because they're not elect. And I would say no because, um, well, it's true they're not elect, but who are the elect? The elect are the whosoever wills and the non-elect are the whosoever wants. So every Christian does believe in the doctrine of election. Uh, as I know you know from the statements you've made in this question, the question is not does God elect, the question is how does God elect, and it becomes an issue of foreknowledge, and the verb prognosco, 
before knowledge or prior knowledge simply means that. Paul uses it that way. Peter uses it that way of someone who had prior knowledge of an event. And so they would redefine prognosco, though they can't back it up biblically from its other usages in the New Testament. So God in eternity past knew how people would respond to general revelation and to specific revelation. And based on what he knew, if God didn't know, he wouldn't be God. God knows who will be saved, who won't be saved. The question is, does that mitigate against your free will? And I would say, no, not at all. God in his sovereignty and his providence and his omniscience knows who will be saved. But that still does not take away free will. Nor would I say that man is so free that he can come to the Lord independently of God because he cannot. A man is dead in his trespasses and sins. So the initiative does not begin with us. It always begins with God whether it's God writing his attributes and his creation, or whether it's God uh, bringing people into our path and giving us a more specific knowledge of the plan of salvation. By his doing, Paul will say we are in Christ Jesus. So no one can take any credit for either introducing someone to Christ or for coming to Christ. Well, I became a Christian because I read this apologist and that apologist, and on my own, I figured it out that there's a God and I should believe in Jesus. That's about as arrogant as you can get and as self-centered a testimony as you can get. By his doing, we're in Christ Jesus. But once God opens the heart, there is a choice that you can freely make. So I'm not certainly Arminian. I'm certainly not a Calvinist. I would call myself a Calvinian. But if your pastor wants to win people to Jesus, fantastic. Go alongside, support him, encourage him. And if that's the best church you can find, then great. Just make sure that, um, you know, you're, you're not, you know, battling the pastor behind his back and you in a Christ-like fashion can agree to disagree. Well, we're, we're out of time today, but we're so glad you could join us for the Bible line this hour. And if you have questions, you can email them to TBL. That stands for the Bible line at WAGP.net. You can even call in ahead of time to our Call in line at 843-525-1859, and there's an option there for you to leave a short, pithy question. Anyway, thank you today for joining us, and if you don't have a place to worship, I want to invite you this Sunday to Community Bible Church. We're beginning a brand new study on the book of Jonah, verse by verse by verse, and you will know the book of Jonah, God willing, by the time we're done. And more than knowing the book of Jonah, you'll know our Lord better and you will desire to more passionately follow him and obey him.